when it was shown. So we're just hoping that it's going to shed new light. Um, who's, who, who didn't see the earlier DVD of Matthew? Quite a few. Yeah, there's quite a few. It's really good. It helps us to uh, really appreciate Jesus. I think that's what I found, that it really helped me appreciate Jesus and to see him in a different light. And um, really, that's what we want, isn't it, really, to see the wonder and the glory of Jesus. I mean, really, that's why Matthew wrote his gospel, because Matthew had found that Jesus was more than a man, some, someone very special, unique. No one could be his double. No one could do anything better than him. Yes, I'm trying to get there. I'm holding my glasses, mate. And, um... oh, I'm going to stuff that in my pocket. And put that there. That's good. I don't want my pen anymore. <clears throat> my pen so that's where we are. We're going to look at Matthew, um, and um, in a moment, um, Alex is going to start up and um, fire up the system, hopefully. We've got a new computer since the last time we saw the DVD, so hopefully it'll go straight to the point. Well done. Okay, now, just to explain, um, we're just going to see the first, we're just going to read the first part of the chapter now, that's a bit daunting because all I've got to speak on this morning is what they call a genealogy, the family line of, of Jesus, as, it, as Matthew records it. In the, it wouldn't allow me to have the second half of the chapter. So they just gave me the first bit. So preachers are given bags of elastic bands sometimes, you know, and, and they pick them out and they sort of stretch out what's in there and make something of it. Like Derek made a story of that bus going up the hill, you remember when he preached last? Yeah, like that's an example, right? About a stretch of story. Okay? <laughs> Preachers need elastic bands. Okay, okay, Alex, let's uh, see the first half of the uh, chapter.
I haven't got a story, by the way. If anybody's watching the culture show on Think Well, you probably wasn't. I mean, I don't watch programs like that because I'm not of culture. Um, but um, if you was watching the culture show, you might have noticed that they, um, uh, the guy, uh, it was about um, the fact that um, so many million pounds worth of books are going to be given away. And um, it's the culture to get people reading. Uh, and to, to do things which, and to learn new stuff, you know. And um, the chap who was sort of presenting it went into an old book room, and it looked a bit like Baggins at Rochester, because I've been in there several times, second-hand bookshop. And, um, but he did mention this, this Hebrew proverb, and it goes like this, open a book and you are a pilgrim at the gates of a new city. Open a book and you're a pilgrim at the gates of a new city. He also gave another statement. It was this. Books allow you 
to go to places you can't go yourself. Books allow you to... Now, if you talk to Fred about books, well, he, he'll tell you better. He's mentioned a book this morning by Tozer. Well, if there's a book that Fred hasn't read, it's not worth knowing about, I'll tell you that. But he did sell me this one years ago in CLC Bookshop in Canterbury, and uh, it was there in Stour Street. Now, that's going back a few years. The shop's moved since then. Um, but there used to be a little office around the back, and all you could hear was a tap, tap, tap on a typewriter. And so if you went in the shop, suddenly this man would come out, you see, and you'd obviously chosen your purchase by then, and he'd take your money. Always ready to take your money. But yeah, I bought this book, and uh, it's called Baker's Pocket Harmony of the Gospels. Now, this morning, we're, we're beginning with, um, with Matthew, and Matthew is just one of four writers who determine with the, with the passion they have in their lives and what they've known and seen of Jesus, they had to put pen to paper. They couldn't help themselves. It was such a passion. Jesus has changed my life. He means really something to me. I must write this down. But of course, there was a purpose behind each of the Gospels, and I'll come back to that just later. But we have to put it in context because Matthew's Gospel was written about 85 to 90 years. It, sorry, it was written in 85 to 90, which means about 50 years after Jesus was here. And um, Jesus had gone back to heaven, and there were many needs amongst the early Christians. And one of the great needs amongst the early Christians was actually to influence and to keep on influencing the Jewish people and to convince them that Jesus was, in actual fact, the Christ the Messiah. A couple of years ago, um, we went to Poland and went round Auschwitz. And um, it's very moving as you go around there because you will see in one, it's now a museum, funny sort of museum, but there it is, it's history. And it's all about the Jewish people. And you'd have this one showcase and in there you'd have all these old shoes. Some of them were worn out, some of them were pretty new but they were all heaped up in this showcase. Some were little children's. Some of them were big ones. Some with laces, others with bits of rag tied around them. You go to another showcase and there would be a pile of glasses. And these glasses were all different sorts, all different makes. Some of them had the bit of the usual tape in the middle. Just hold it on your nose, stop it slipping down. Like my dad, he had a bit of tape here when the hinge had broken. <laughs> you know, and you, you repair it. But it was just, just piles of glasses. And as I was thinking about this morning and thinking about, you know, Matthew and why he wrote his book, God allowed blindness to come upon Israel so that the rest of the people in the world might come to know Jesus. Isn't that a fantastic sort of unusual, mysterious sort of thing that God has a plan that he allowed blindness to come on his own people, the Jewish nation, in order that the rest of the world might come to know Jesus. It's that big of impact in the world that God's at work in the world. And I thought of these glasses, and I thought, yes, because glasses help us see, don't they? They're an aid to see. And I thought of the Jewish people and how 
there's a time coming when God's going to remove the blindness and they will see. But Matthew's writing to Jewish people and so it was this need in the early church was to still go on convincing Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. And so Matthew begins with a genealogy. Now, it's not absolutely certain that Matthew was the writer. It's still up for debate. But for where we are this morning and what we've seen, you say Matthew sort of gave his testimony, um, and, and yet sort of theologians sort of discuss and argue amongst themselves whether Matthew is actually the writer. But we need to assume this morning that Matthew is the writer, and we're going to go forward on that basis. When I was doing my college work, you always have to make a... They told me, you've got to make assumption and tell the examiner what you assume is part of the question that's being asked. Make sure he knows that you know what you're talking about. Assumption. So we're going forward on the basis of this assumption this morning that Matthew is the writer. Now we know Matthew, and um, we know that he was called to be a disciple. We had that testimony given up there this morning. In that production, Matthew said, I was that disciple that Jesus called. He said, follow me, and I followed him. That's all that Matthew mentions, and it's almost like a Lady Gaga act. Matthew likes Jesus. Anybody know about Lady Gaga? She's... You're surprised I do, aren't you? <laughs> she has this way of talking and goes into a shop and she tells the shop assistant, Lady Gaga likes those things there. Lady Gaga wants to have one of those things there. Lady Gaga will pay a lot of money for that. And she talks like that, you see. Well, Matthew, we don't know anything much about Matthew because he doesn't refer to him. So he doesn't even ask a question during the gospel which he writes. But when Matthew is referring to when Jesus calls him. He says, Jesus saw Levi sitting at the receipt of custom and he said, follow me, and that's all you hear. And then there's a little bit of dialogue after that, which we'll come to in a minute. So what he's saying, the way he's putting it in his story, he's talking it in a detached sort of way. He's saying, hmm, Matthew noticed Jesus. Matthew was hearing great things about Jesus. Matthew was so impacted by Jesus that when Jesus said to him, follow me, he got up and left everything and followed him. So that's how Matthew talks about his self in, 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 in the Matthew. But he starts with a genealogy, and this was important to the Jewish people. Genealogy was so important, they kept very careful records about families. But when it came to Jesus, who's the promised Messiah, it had to be spot on. And I reckon Matthew must have had to make some research in order to get to where he came to, to put the genealogy here. Search the records. Margaret's niece works in the record office in London, and she tells us, uh, and she tells us of all the people that come in there wanting to know, you know, their history, wanting to know where they came from. So Matthew recognises, as a Jew himself, he accepts that many of his own people 
had real difficulty in accepting Jesus as the promised Messiah. Together, the Gospels present a living, unique personality who answers and relates to the generations of world history. Not one single person falls outside the claims that Jesus has on your life because he came, lived and died for each and every person coming into the world. And so the four Gospels are written in harmony together, each bringing different facets and aspects about Jesus and presenting them to different sorts of people. And so as Matthew talks and relates to Jewish people, Mark, well, he, he refers, he's sort of aiming his gospel at the Romans, you know, and, that, the, and the community was largely maybe soldiers from Rome, Roman governing people, and people who were hard military people. And what Mark is saying, he said they're reachable with the gospel too. You know, the gospel means is, is important to you as well, you Roman people. And so Mark writes in that way. He wrote it so that Romans might understand and the gospel is relevant to you too. When it comes to Luke, he, he writes to what we call Greek-speaking people, people who, who understood Greek and people who knew that, but people who were largely outside of the Jewish community and there were a lot of those sort of people in that area. And so Luke determines to sort of write to these people. And so together, these four gospel writers, they, they sort of are producing works that will be relevant to the, world, to the world around them, you know, to people who could understand. When John writes his gospel, there's a more of a spiritual level in his gospel. John appeals more to a spiritual community and maybe the church, maybe the church. People those who can understand and pursue believable truth. Nicodemus typically exposed a lack of what others were now seeking and pursuing the knowledge of God. And what do I mean by that? When Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and um, he said, no man can come and do these miracles, no man can come from God and do these miracles unless he is from God. Nicodemus said that, but there was a point of misunderstanding here. And then Jesus goes on to talk to him about being born again. And he couldn't grasp this. And this is the point. Jesus said to him, you're Israel's teacher and you don't even know this. You don't know this. You don't know about being born again. And then there was Nathaniel. Jesus saw him sitting under the tree and um, he knew that Nathanael had seen Jesus and he was beginning to look into who he was and why he was there. And Jesus said, I saw you trying to find out who I was sitting under the tree. You're trying to learn more about me and see if I was really the Messiah. He said, I saw you sitting under the tree finding out. And so as these questions began to arise amongst the people that Jesus had come to, these writers were trying to put these things in context and in place so that everyone everywhere could understand who Jesus really is. And Matthew's at this, but Jewish people, that's at his heart because he's a Jew himself. And he realises their difficulty to comprehend really who Jesus is. And so Matthew's to Jewish people. 
We need to look at Matthew and just say, who is this man? How can we set him up? He's a disciple, we know that. But as we enter the gospel that he wrote to Jewish people, um, there are several things which actually tell us who Matthew is and give us the flavour of this man. You know, he's totally immersed in what he's writing about. You get that feel as you read it. Totally immersed in it. It's not, what I'm saying is here, this is not a newspaper reporter detached reporting facts. This is Matthew. His life is different because of Jesus. So his account. In, in chapter 13, it, his call is recounted and, and he refers to that. And um, this is how it goes. Gospel according to Matthew, not Levi. Jesus called Levi. His name was changed to Matthew. And so he's saying, you know, I'm a changed man because of this man. I'm a changed man because of this man. Now, Helen's given us a testimony this morning, and she will say, and we all say too, along with her, we're changed people because of this man. If we don't feel changed in our soul, in our spirit, in our, in our beings, that we're being changed into what we really want to be, then maybe it's Jesus who hasn't really been allowed to impact our lives. But underneath it all, the facts are floating on a great passion. And Matthew is saying, I'm a changed man because of this man, because of Jesus. In the spirit of the gospel, I am Matthew, gift of God, because that's what his name means. And what he's saying is, my new name so displaces my old name, and here's the reason why. I'm a new man. I'm a changed man because of Jesus. And so Matthew doesn't say, oh, dear people, I'm Matthew writing to you. We're told that possibly it was Matthew writing the gospel, and it's his life that's been changed. He's not writing now. It's not like the letters. Now, look here, guys. Take Jesus, for example, etc., 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 and I'm telling you to you, love Matthew, like Paul did, writing to the Christians and saying, I, Paul, write this letter to you, grace and peace be to you. And then at the end of the letter, he writes, sincerely, Paul. The flavour of Matthew comes through what he writes. And so we look at Matthew and that sort of light. I very often use the, the example of how do we understand these four Gospels together. And I, some, I, I took this example before, uh, you may remember. And it's a loaf, take a, a loaf of bread, a sliced loaf of bread, and it's all in a nice package, a nice uh, polythene packet, and it's put on the shelf um, for people to come along and say, that looks a nice loaf, I'll buy that and have it for myself. And a sliced loaf. And as we look at the wrapper, the wrapper has this wonderful uh, little emblem on it by appointment to Her Majesty the Queen. That means she likes the loaves too. It means that she's ordered, you know, they can buy these loaves. And as Matthew writes his gospel, it's packaged up in such a way that it's by appointment to His Majesty the King. So he wants us to see that Jesus is the King, the Messiah, that God had promised long ago 
was now available to be bought. And then you have, uh, you have the bread inside, and uh, in Mark's sort of flavour, it would be like, this is bread. You all need it, get on with it. Buy it. It's bread. When it comes to the slices of the bread, this is like Luke writing, he's breaking it up. And in Acts says, he said, in my former treatise, in my former orderly account, my former orderly account, I'm telling you, about all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. And Luke brings two things together here, all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Here's a man whose life was consistent with what he taught. Here's a man who who writes, Luke is saying, there's no one like Jesus. There's really no one like Jesus. You know, he's not like the scribes and Pharisees. They say things and teach things, but they actually don't do them themselves. He's saying, now, look, I want you to look at Jesus, and uh, he wants you to see this consistency that what he taught was all in keeping with what he did. And what he did was all in keeping with what he taught. And see, there's consistency in this man. He's different than most men because what you see in Jesus is real. And there's no one else really like that. <coughs> so Luke is like the sliced bread. And then Mark comes back and he says, he said, oh, it's the best thing since sliced bread. Jesus, he's the best thing since sliced bread. You know, he's plain, simple, factual, just a man. When it comes to John, he goes deeper. He's a spiritual man. Sort of spirit, you know, the spirit appeals to him quite a lot. He talks about the water and he talks about the spirit. And he talks about, you know, how deeply we can be in love with Jesus. Jesus, I'm John, the one who is very close to Jesus. I put my head on his breast. You know, I, I have this closeness with him. This spirituality goes on between us. And so there are different flavours of these four Gospels as the, as the writers try and fold how wonderful Jesus is. They try to put it in their own words. And of course, this causes problems. Most of you know this, but, uh, you know, the theologians, you know, the people say, oh, why can't we just have one account about Jesus? You know, they don't agree anyway. They're not meant to in what they say because they're each giving their own experience of Jesus. And it's a bit like an insurance claim. The insurers will write to the witnesses and they will ask them to give their account of the accident or whatever it may be. And if, all the, if they all agree, you say, yeah, there's a bit of a fix here. Some, they've got together and decided what to say. But, you know, if they're all different, one brings out this point, another one brings out that point, and another one brings out that point, they say, these are real people, they've had a real accident. You know, their claim is bona fide. And so as we look at these gospel writers, Matthew being one of them, they're actually having a harmony in what they say. This little book I've watched, it's called Baker's Harmony of the Gospels. So if we hear that little bit of theological thing which says, well, they don't agree, well, in a sense, it's not meant to in what they actually say, but they're in agreement of who Jesus is and what he's done and that he's the real Messiah. 
And so that's the, that's the flavour of the Gospels together. And Matthew is different. And so we see Matthew. He's not saying, I've got something enormously important to tell you. Or that's, making, that's taking the money when Jesus came along and said to me, want to change jobs? And he did. This is Matthew. In Matthew 13, verses 44 and 45, we have two little parables together. The parable of the treasure and the pearl. The person found the treasure, so he went and bought the field. He went and bought the field. So Matthew buys in to Jesus, who he is, why he came, he buys in. Now the parable is not said because of that, I'm just using that as an explanation to tell you and for us to understand where Matthew is. He's not just a reporter, he's actually got up from his job and changed it. He's moved on to follow Jesus. He's bought in to following Jesus. Have we all bought in to following Jesus? You know, we can believe almost everything about Jesus, all the factual stuff about Jesus, unless we buy in to the real reason why he came, we've lost it. Matthew, it's almost Matthew saying, I bought the field. He's worth giving up even my job for to follow. That's discipleship. So the elements of Matthew's discipleship as he writes his gospel are important because he's saying, I've been there, I know what it's like, I'm writing to you Jews because there's no better thing to do but to accept Jesus and to follow him. So Matthew bought in who Jesus was. And many people today, we're going to enjoy Christmas soon, although it may not be enjoyment for everyone. There are many lonelier people back, and Christmas is a horrendous time for a lot of people. But if we celebrate Christmas, and we're just celebrating the party, and because it's done all over the world, we're just enjoying the phenomena that it's become, and not bought in to why Jesus came and what he's done for us. We've lost it. Matthew saw Jesus. He saw he was the real Messiah. And he gave up everything to follow him. That is the essence of discipleship. Follow me, said Jesus. And Matthew left what he was doing and followed Jesus. Another verse that helps us to understand where Matthew is, is Psalm 45. He said, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. I write things which concern the king. And so Matthew's tongue is a pen of a ready writer because Jesus is so wonderful, so glorious, the true Messiah, no one else can take his place and he's brought into this and he writes his gospel 
So he puts it down. Jesus is king. He's the true king. Take the, look, I've set out the genealogy for you. You can see, you Jews can see, he's the right one. There's no one else. No one else can fit this. No one else can come through these families. He's from the right family. From David, from Abraham, he's the man according to the promise. He bought into it. Last week, John led us through a prayer that would, in effect, have brought us to that place of buying in to what Jesus has done for us. What was a prayer of accepting Jesus, and if we did that, we could have bought in. What is it to buy in to what Jesus has done for us? In Matthew, in Romans 10, and verse 9, We have these words. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. That is buying in to who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We might call it being born again. We might call it being saved. We might call it being translated from the power of darkness into the kingdom of God's own son. But it's all this. It's a change of where I am now into where I need to go. A change of family. So, who do you think you are? That's a good television program, isn't it? Who do you think you are? So um, I'm going to read a little bit out of a book that Steve bought about Matthew. Celebrities on the TV series Who Do You Think You Are receive expert help in tracing their family tree. A wide range of people have appeared on the show, but they all have one thing in common. They all want to learn that their ancestors were good, worthy and noble. All right, we don't talk about, <laughs> you know, those people in Cornwall. Pirates, I think they were. Right. Matthew starts his gospel with Jesus' family tree, and it's not pretty. More than that, Matthew seems to go out of his way to demonstrate that it's not pretty. He is descended from Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who dressed up as a prostitute to trick her backslidden father-in-law into having sex with her. He is the descendant of Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho, who was saved when her city was destroyed because she hid two spies on the roof of her brothel and lied to protect their lives. He is descended from Ruth, the widowed migrant worker from the Gentile nation of Moab, whose people were so corrupt that they were excluded from the presence of God. He is the descendant of Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, who committed adultery with David and became his queen, even while her murdered husband, Grave, was still fresh. Matthew emphasises this sin by referring to her as Uriah's wife. And then adds to this list, Rehoboam, Jehoram, Ahaz and Manasseh, the wickedest kings of Judah. Finally, he tells us that Jesus was the son of the Virgin Mary, conceived so miraculously that even her fiancé thought that she was guilty of illicit sex 
before marriage. When the actress Patsy Kensett discovered her own family tree, she told the BBC that it hit me so hard, I stopped washing my hair and wearing my makeup. She would not have coped with a sordid family tree like Jesus. So what is Matthew's point here? He wants us to grasp that Jesus is the Son of God, the promised Messiah who ushers in the kingdom of God. So what possible benefit can he derive from starting with his terrible ancestry? Actually, he does so in order to make a very important point. And unless we grasp what he's saying, we will misunderstand the very nature of the kingdom of God. Every filmmaker and novelist knows that the opening scene is the crucial moment in which they either win or lose their audience attention. Matthew knew that God knows that. And yet God inspired Matthew to begin his gospel and the New Testament itself with a genealogy that reads like a who's who of the villains of ancient Israel. He knew that it would capture the attention of Matthew's original Jewish readership. But he also wants to use them to teach us two important principles that lie at the heart of his kingdom revolution. The first thing he wants us to grasp is that his kingdom is about God coming down to save humankind. And if that sounds obvious, remember that religion is not about this at all. Religion is always about humankind stepping up to reach God. Matthew reminds us in verse 23 that the gospel of Jesus Christ is very different from that type of religion. Isaiah prophesied that the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Matthew makes it clear that Jesus is God with us. God really and truly with us. He did not come down reservedly, willing to become a man in a palace or a Jewish nobleman, with impeccable family credentials, he exchanged the highest glories of heaven for the lowest depths of humanity. He humbled himself all the way to become God with us and to pave a way for us with God. Jesus' abject humanity is not incidental to the gospel. It is essential to the gospel because he became fully human while remaining fully God. He was able to save the human race by undoing through his righteous life all that Adam lost through his sin. Hebrews 2 verse 17 tells us that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every way in order to deal with sin. And Paul tells us that we will only be raised from the dead and live forever with God because Jesus has been bodily raised as our human forerunner. The fact that God has stooped down to become the man Jesus is one of the reasons why he is not simply one way to God, but the only way to God. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, so says the scripture. The second thing that God wants us to grasp is that his kingdom is about God's grace to people who deserve nothing. Kingdom, nothing but his anger and judgment. So I read that again. The second thing that God wants us to grasp, that his kingdom is about God's grace to people who deserve nothing but his anger and judgment. Jesus is the seed of Abraham, the moon-worshipping Mesopotamian whom God chose to be his prophet and the ancestor of the saviour of the world. 
Jesus is the son of David, the shepherd boy. God chose and anointed to found a dynasty of kings, a man who sinned but who knew how to repent. Jesus is the descendant of Zerubbabel, the man who was next in line for David's throne, but whose claim was now so defunct that his heir Joseph was working as a manual labourer in the building trade. Matthew wants us to grasp that Jesus came to a human race steeped in sin so that he could outweigh our sin with even more of God's grace. So Matthew's opening words are not a dull series of names to endure, like a long list of credits before the real action begins. They're a clue, right from the outset, that God's kingdom is different and far better than the one people were expecting. He was not born into a palace to rub shoulders with the rich and mighty, but into a dirty stable to rub shoulders with sinners, Gentiles, outcasts and rejects. Anyone who is humble enough to cry out for a saviour and believe that they have found him in the carpenter's boy from Galilee. He is God with us, the humble saviour who dived deep into the human problem as the divine infiltrator and who worked God's solution from the inside out. So the genealogy has more behind it than just a list of names. Revealing to us God's wonderful ways of working with man. Now the Jews themselves said, look at that rubbish genealogy. That can't be the king come from that. But Matthew said, an actual fact, he is because there's none other. There's none other who actually comes through that genealogy. It may be a rubbish genealogy, but he's here and he's come. And besides all that, what did the angel say? Son of David, he's speaking to Joseph now, the man who adopted Jesus into his family. Son of David, he said. The one who's going to be born is Jesus Christ, (coughs) the saviour of the world. So it has the angel's word that reminds us of who Jesus is. Who do you think you are? (coughs) Yeah, it's become a very good programme And there was a controversy concerning Michael Parkinson who wanted to know why they hadn't done his genealogy. And the reply he got was, you're too common. But, and I close with this, there's much on the website about the DNA of Jesus and there are Jews around today who still have that family DNA that Jesus had because he had brothers and sisters. And so... The table of European nations would tell us and can be traced right now back to Noah and the flood. And so there are people around. As history goes forward, the DNA of Jesus. What is the real DNA of Jesus? Isaiah said, who can speak of his offspring? Where are they? He didn't father any children. But it said there will be his family. And into Jesus' hand was given the authority and given the way of drawing a family to himself. It's our family day as a church, and it's come right on on cue, hasn't it? You know, that Jesus is building a new family. Paul in Ephesians talks about the father of whom all nations on earth, in heaven and on earth, are blessed. The father. And Jesus is the one who's calling a family to himself. John said, 
that would be born of God. That which is not the will of a husband or the will of a man, that which doesn't come naturally, but believers are born of God into a new family. And so who do you think you are? Being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ makes us part of a tremendous family. A tremendous family. And we have Jesus' DNA. And so as we live in this world and we see the sadness of many people growing up who do not know who their ancestors are, who don't even know who their mum or dad was. Very sad situation. And can't even trace their ancestors because they will never find out. I've got a block in tracing mine. Tom's had a go at tracing his genealogy. They've got as far as London Zoo but can't get any further. <laughs> so, um, it's... This DNA... Who am I born from? Am I born from above? Or am I looking more to my earthly family? But Matthew's saying, you know, the family of God, it is so wonderful. Belonging is so important. Like Jesus said to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again. You must be born from above born of the Spirit of God and drawn into God's family, being part of the great family on earth. So who do you think you are? I know who I am in Christ. And we can know who we are in Christ by belonging to this wonderful family. They can't go back beyond my dad because he came to Herm Bay, had his way with the maid living in the thing down there, and he was a French doctor. So we can't get any back any further than that. So as a block, many people, but as a believer in Christ, and I know my dad as a believer in Christ, cherished his heavenly family more than his earthly family. And this morning, what family is important to us? The family of God? Or they're both important facets of life. But we have the opportunity to become part of God's family, part of the great purpose in this earth. Part of what God's doing. Who do you think you are? Who you know you can be in Christ? I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you so much for all you've done for us. We thank you, Father, for the sense of belonging. May today be very special to us as a church, as a family. We pray, Father, that we might be moving forward together. We might know the blessings and the privilege it is to belong. And we thank you, Father, that Jesus has become our real Father. How you father us, Lord Jesus. How you care for us. Thank you for the real deal. Thank you for offering to us what nobody else could ever offer to us. Perfect love. An understanding that's so full of wisdom a sense of peace and of discipline on our lives which gives us security, the sense of knowing that we will all be together for eternity, the sense, Lord, that you're about something great in this earth. Thank you for the opportunity to look to you again and we ask for your blessing upon us to know the blessings of your heaven in Jesus' name. Amen.